Greetings, and welcome to the 80-Level Roundtable Podcast. In each episode, host Kirill Tokarev invites video game industry leaders to talk about the world of game development. No topic is off-limits as long as it relates to video game development. New episodes are in the works, so remember to follow us or subscribe and share with someone you know will also enjoy the podcast. Tell us a bit about your story. I mean, you've worked at CD Projekt Red, you worked at Rocksteady, you work at Deep Silver, like huge uh, studios. How did you start? Like, how did you find your way from like a freelancer into doing all those gigs? Started in the Philippines. Um, I was I had a programming background, and I went into a multimedia school. And when I started outsourcing or game development outsourcing, maybe had a head start of about two, three years before I, I went into the industry. And at that time, there were only a handful of um, game outsourcing studios in the Philippines. Um, one of them was called Lady Luck. And Lady Luck was one of the primary vendors of uh, Naughty Dog. Um, and they brought AAA to the Philippines um, and basically trained up a bunch of artists um, to start working on those games. So I joined one of the, those, uh, Lady Luck specifically. Um, and then from there, that became my launching point to like studying in Canada just to reinforce my knowledge. And then from there, I went over to Europe to CD Projekt, um, which back during that time, they only shipped like Witcher 2. So they weren't, they were there, they had the presence, but Witcher 3 wasn't a thing yet. Um, and I figured, you know what, let's, let's try to live in Europe. Um, so I ended up spending the next five and a half years over there, actually, before I shifted over to Rocksteady. And then to Deep Silver, Fish Labs, and then now I'm here with Builder Rocket Boy. There are new huge publishers being born in Europe, like Embracer, for example, which is kind of... I mean, are they actually new? Because they've been around for a while, right? Yeah, I mean, I've been covering this industry since, like, 90s, so for me, it's they're pretty new. They, they seem pretty new, but they've been, they've been like just recently buying a lot of video game companies. Definitely. So that's also one of the things that's kind of big in Europe. And uh, I'm just trying to understand like from, like if, because you live in, in the heart of it, right? You understand how they kind of operate. When you are there, how do you see this industry in the region? Not just in Hungary. But let's say when you go to European events, when you go to Gamescom, uh, when you go to all those places, like, do you feel like it's expanding, shrinking? It seems to be expanding in certain places. Uh-huh. Like, definitely Poland. It's been erupting all over the place. Like, if I'm not mistaken, um, Infinity Ward is now there. Um, Activision as well, just recently opened up like a branch at the moment. Do you feel like this is happening because of the, just a lot of talent 
that's there from like these big like people can fly and then Techland and then there's it's, it's yeah CD project it's Techland it's people can fly it's 11-bit and then all of those employees or all of that talent started basically spreading across Europe but mostly centered in Poland because they have families there um, and they don't want to leave because because there's like uh, this reasonable um, should I say like the cost of living is very affordable in those places so why go you know to to another country where the cost of living is high the salaries are okay but it's not enough to sustain you in a way that you can still buy property in all of these things. So, yeah, I think that's why they want to stay. So if if we're talking about Poland, what are like the other big kind of powerhouse regions in Europe that are still making like AAA games? I would say the UK is still on it. Yeah, the UK... Um, there's only a handful, like in Germany, but hardly. Um, I believe IO Interactive opened up in Barcelona. So that's starting. But I think it's actually quite in Eastern Europe right now. It's funnily enough, yeah. Why do you think this happened? Because of the costs of uh, production? I reckon, yeah. It's, a, it's the cost of production. I think they also have a pretty huge coder body. Um, in Eastern Europe, um, stemming from Ukraine, um, like Poland. Um, and at the same time, they just don't want to go. They just don't want to leave. So what do you do? You move your company there if you want to take soak up some of that talent. Um, do, do you feel like talent is one of the main drivers sort of like for companies to go around in a new region like is this like the main thing where they're doing it or are there other things like you know like we said tax incentives or maybe cheaper I don't know leasing space or it's probably that also like um, the it's less complicated to set up shop over there but that I think the primary drive is talent so we kind of jumped into the European stuff, but um, so one of the biggest part of your career, you were working as an outsource manager. You were working a lot with external kind of development to you. I started as in external development. So we have a big question for you. So we work with a lot of people, right, who either it's small outsourcing companies or it's uh, even teams who are not really, they don't have a, like an LLC or anything. Uh, but they do want to sell their kind of skills and capacity to a client like Nordic. That would be like a dream client for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, or any big studio, let's say. From the perspective of a studio, since you worked in a lot of those, uh, what do companies usually look at when they're making this decision to hire um, this extra help or not to hire? What are like the, you know, the things that are super important in order to land the contract? Usually there are three aspects that we look for in a studio that we'd like to work with. Um, one is, of course, the talent, the portfolio, um, the track record, 
when it comes to like if they've um, had any other projects before, maybe from a AAA studio as well. Um, next one is if they have the IT capacity. So the quick internet speeds, if they have IT support to be able to plug into your Perforce, to your engine, and accommodate to all of the tools that you have and expose them um, to the people working in those companies. And then the third is to have a very reliable production team to support because what's expected of an external team is basically to be self-sufficient to a certain degree and to be very communicative, especially in aspects that um, information that they may not have been fed to begin with or briefed with. So they have to be proactive with that because sometimes the development studio won't be able to catch it ahead of time. So it is ideal that they would communicate with us and post us all of the questions um, that could, anything that could possibly happen, basically, and to cover their ground. So when working with, uh, I'm going to tell you a story. So um, I think it was a long time ago, maybe like, 10 to 12 years ago uh, like a large company in Eastern Europe they were building a multiplayer online title uh, sort of like similar to World of Warcraft or something like that um, stylized graphics like a lot of assets a lot of work involved and they started to work with outsourcers like and at that time uh, there were also like a lot of those smaller teams and um, of course they kind of ended up having a lot of problems with communication and uh, bug fixing, tweaking models and all this stuff and what they did is that created they created this huge bible which was like I don't know like a hundred pages long where they, <laughs> they kind of step by step wrote all the mistakes that the outsourcers were making and were trying to communicate why this shouldn't be done or how it should be done and kind of like that um, I hopefully we've grown like for the last like 10 or 12 years and now we have a better solution so when you're <clears throat> kind of communicating with those teams when you're trying to explain what you need what are the main tools that you're using is it still like you're writing a brief and uh, you still write the brief but you also you have to be introspective um, so I was working with Rocksteady and Outsourcing or external development is a big deal. We were we were doing external development to pretty much ex the number of people that were the size of our studio. So it was like 270, 280. Um, so it's a huge extension of the studio. And in, and in order to be able to pull that off, you have to be introspective about your own workflows inside the company. And you have to be clear about that. Um, so it's because I, I was working with a lot of leads and normally we would have like a few months in advance to prepare for external development. So what we were doing is basically me asking the leads like, all right, so what are you trying to make? Okay, I'm trying to make this. Now let, let's break it apart. And basically just breaking it down as if they were onboarding somebody internally for the first time. So what do they need to do? What's step one? How do you make a car or something like that, you know? Um, 
and I would poke and prod at the very beginning and ask all of the specific questions already to cover all of the ground. And then to accompany that is to figure out their workflow. How would your deliverables be like? What are the steps? What are, what's the first deliverable? What's the second deliverable? What's the third, fourth, up to the final product? And break it down into, okay, so you're expecting concepts first. What kind of concepts do you want? Do you just want line art to begin with? And then once that gets approved, then we do a render? Because they, they need to know what they're expecting, up to what quality they're expecting. Only then will you be able to explain that to an external vendor. Because imagine you're trying to onboard 10 new people and they know nothing about how you work as a company. You can't, you can't rely on like just the experience of the external partners. Each company, each AAA dev, each AA dev that approaches them has their own methodology. And you can make an asset in 20 different ways. So you got to choose which one. And that's basically how you get it done. So it's not only like setting up the correct Slack channels. Ideally, you have constant communication with them. You have to treat them in a way that they are somebody who is working in the same company. You need to be able to send them a message immediately if there is an emergency. They need to know if perforce is locked. They need to know if they checked in, the, they need to check in their files now because there will be like, let's say, uh, they're going to make a new build and then they want to secure it. You need to open up all of those lines of communications. Otherwise, you'll end up with, well, pretty much a nightmare. It's, it sounds like it's an incredible amount of paperwork and organization and basically it's it's like in, increasing your headcount twice. Yeah. It's like hiring a hundred people of the same. It's exactly that. It's, it's almost like just imagine what if you had an internal team and you're going to expand it now and they will be staying with you for the next two years. So the only real difference is that if you hire internally when your project is done, when you ship, what do you do with those people? When you just suddenly expanded a hundred more, but maybe you don't need it. So that's why you invest on external development so that you have, you can increase to a hundred over the next two years, but don't necessarily have to worry about sustaining a hundred for the next ten. Yeah, I, th I think what you're saying is that it's a, it's kind of like a he healthier way of doing business where uh, your core team is kind of there and you're taking care of them. But at the same time, if you need to scale a little bit, you can always rely on an external partner. And uh, that brings me to uh, the next question. Like if you're, like if you're playing any games and you are lucky enough to beat it and you see like the credits roll I am right now almost scared of this moment because I know that it's going to be like almost 10 or like 15 minutes of just names going for like forever and uh, the question coming from that 
in today's market, like if you want to do, let's say, a double A, triple A production, is it even conceivable that you can do something like that without using external development or some kind of art outsourcing? Unless you minimize your scope, like into something really intelligent, like um, the guys who made Valheim, for example, five people, <laughs> something that just sold 16 million in the first three weeks, that was thinking smart. Um, so it really depends on what you make. It, when you go something like open world multiplayer, I don't know, city game in the future, blah, 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 then you're, you're setting yourself up for like a m huge scope that potentially an internal team won't be able to accommodate for. We'll be back after a quick break. Ever thought modern video games should be more interesting? At the Gaming Blender, we take randomized genres, mechanics, and make a new game every episode. I've added permadeath. We have a survival game of a hardcore simulation, which could be House Flipper, and with the permadeath of XCOM. Then that all has to be an action adventure. Yes. Ooh, dear. Yes. And sometimes it doesn't quite work. And you you have a construction off over the course of the of the narrative. A construction off. The way, the way we can do this is that we ditch your idea entirely. Entirely. Check out The Gaming Blender on all your favourite podcast platforms now. So when I talk with uh, like other outsourcing companies, usually like their uh, leadership, what they're saying is that uh, in the current market... Um, Studios don't have capacity to do everything that they want to do. Like, there is, like, no way in hell that, like, uh, Sony Santa Monica or some other large uh, company will be able to do, like, something like, I don't know, like, uh, Bloodborne or, you know, God of War or, any, or Call of Duty without kind of using like, external help. Um, do you feel overall, is this kind of beneficial for the whole video game industry or do you feel like this creates an environment where bigger companies are making bigger products and smaller studios uh, don't have kind of an opportunity to grow and instead they kind of reserve to doing outsource work because I, I know like a lot of those stories where there are a lot there are a lot of like smaller developers who start with external development like just I have a bunch of employees right now. Yes, some of them are working on our internal project, but I am taking other contracts from other AAA developers to co-dev, yeah. A lot of them start out like that. Um, but yeah, in terms of AAA, I can't see any other way than actually utilizing co-dev. Do you feel like in the future, with all the AI going on, with all the procedural stuff going on, and you, were, you you mentioned that developers, when they think smart and they use the right tech, they can kind of lower the costs and especially the headcount when they're producing. Do you feel like this is uh, in some way going to influence outsourcing? Is it like a substitute for outsourcing or not? Really? It is possible because, like. Um 
like recently, I forget. Um, what is that AI who is working on concepts right now? Oh, well, that also. But there is also the other one, Mid Journey. Yeah, I think. Yeah. It's a little bit crazy, but it's quite interesting that they are finding ways uh, to to basically generate unique concept art out of just textual information and also plug in the art style of some known artist or if not even some artist in art station and then it would be able to adapt but you also have let's say Houdini um, back during the day when we were making Witcher we were planting every single tree manually with a brush so and and, and rotating them but Nowadays, you can basically have all of those forests spawn based out of logic, um, setting up basically like, oh, is it going to be a just a basin or is it going to be up in the mountains? And with a bunch of rules, you could more or less craft a baseline to cover the whole map and then customize it later on with a bunch of artists. So, yeah, that is doing like, probably 80% of the job already. So whether you need outsourcing for that um, entirely depends on your scope because maybe 80% is still not enough. Yeah, I saw, I kind of see kind of two directions there. Uh, promise this is like the last question about outsourcing, but uh, one of the examples I had is Ubisoft and actually like Rockstar as well. Uh, they have so much money that they, like Rockstar, they just buy huge outsourcing companies in India, for example, and then you just work with them and treat them as like, like you said, like an extension team, which is like they are a part of Rockstar now. There are like Ubisoft is also, but they're going from another angle. They're investing a lot in like R&D, and they're doing those papers on Syncraft where, you know, AI controls. Um, whatever how the characters work in Assassin's Creed uh, there are um, w one of the interesting the most interesting example from this um, kind of line of companies that are trying to find a way out of this where you don't want to spend extra budget I think is Embark uh, I think they're in uh, Denmark or somewhere or Sweden um, th they are just crazy like first of all they hired all of the incredible Houdini guys then they hired a bunch of guys who are doing AI and they are building a huge online multiplayer game about fighting giant um, spider robots or something mm -hmm. and they are AI systems so basically it's like you're fighting Skynet mm -hmm. because there are the robot and how he thinks and moves that's AI AI it's like neural network stuff it's not just like you're a bunch of scripts and then it falls down when you you know put, put in a certain number of, of bullets in it so and every every kind of leg has its own kind of breaking point and if you destroy one leg it still moves but in the other way and it's all generated by AI so I'm wondering do you feel like all this tech that's coming up is it in any way a threat to like the human capital, the people who are working in the, because I mean, if AI is doing perfect animations, maybe I don't need, you know, that many animators anymore. You know what I mean? 
Now, it entirely depends, I guess, because there are two schools of thought when it comes to dealing with AI. One is, yes, let us use utilize AI so there would be less work for humanity, but also feed them. Like let's let's still keep paying them, but let's a let's get AI to do most of the work. And then there is the other side where it's like, why do we need to pay them when the machine is doing it? Um, ultimately, maybe it's just me and my perception of the world, but I get the feeling that it would be the second, which is like, yes, let's develop AI to do 80% of the work and let's employ less. Um, yeah, that's how I see it. Unfortunately. What, do you th what do you think all those people uh, are going to do from, from if, you know, Dali or whatever else? You know, take takes over. Uh, basically, you need to find look, look for another job. Do you, is it like uh, what I'm trying to say? Is it like in the next five years, or do you feel like it's just like beyond our life? Well, there are a bunch of artists already who are pretty much like using utilizing Dali and uh, Midjourney, where they have it create the initial set of uh, of of assets, like concepts, and then from there they work and put put them together again into a different, um, let's say, concept. So at the moment, what they're doing is they're using it to speed up their work, which is great. In the long run, I don't know if it would be able to do that, to push it further than that where it actually doesn't need a human anymore. Mm -hmm. I gotcha. Okay, so talking about humans and uh their importance for video game in general and talking about your career a little bit so you worked as an art manager right in uh, i think it's uh, in deep silver um when when we talk with artists usually we understand very clearly what they do like uh, environment arts artists creates environments like props props materials materials what does art manager do? Is it more about the art or is it more about the manager? It's a little bit of both. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, I'm, I, I'm in, a, in a slightly strange position because I used to be an artist, still am, but I'm very managerial. So what I generally do is I try to at the moment, look for the pain points that artists experience. And I try to basically either A, figure out like, okay, you got 500 tickets pertaining to the same problem. Maybe this actually needs to be impeded against a feature that we need to. And then I come up with the feature with the artist. Like, okay, what's, what's the common denominator over these 500 tickets? It's, it's this particular thing. I'm just going to be very vague about it because it could be anything. And then that's basically it. And then I try to dig up like, okay, is it for tech art? Is it for code? Is it for some other department to help us with? You know, And it's basically that. Or, or figuring out like, oh, our tech artist just invented the new feature. And he's been inventing features for the past couple of uh, years now that is undocumented that only three people know about. In, in different aspects of what of the things that he's worked on. I think we should have him document this, record it in a video, 
probably drop it into somewhere in Confluence and then spread out the knowledge and actually set up calls across various teams to, to be aware that this actually exists. Or in other, in other aspects, it's like, oh, you guys don't have a folder structure or a naming convention. Oh dear, this is going to be a problem. <laughs> how do we do asset tracking efficiently? How do we, how do we estimate how long the work is going to be if we cannot track what's done and what's not done? So a lot of it is like art. It's like the role of a lead, in a way, but on a very technical but also managerial level, where you're trying to make it efficient in terms of like coordinating between interdepartmental teams so like um, the question that I got out of this one is um, do, do you feel like these problems that you're just described and I'm sure you can name many more is this something that you have to struggle with when you're managing art teams like creative teams or is this just universal for any kind of teams? Because, um, like, a, a bigger question to build on top of that is like, what does it take to manage artists? Like, how do you even do this? <laughs> like, that they are okay with you as a manager, and you're they don't get mad at you, and uh, everybody's kind of you know on the same. I think it's also, at least for me, this is just my my thing, is that. As a manager, I need to think of myself as somebody who is not as their boss, but as somebody who wants, who needs to help them. Whether it's getting them focused on the things that they like doing, whether it's making sure that they feel like there is a direction in their career, or there is actually somebody out there who is actually listening to all of the issues, technical issues that they encounter from a day-to-day -day that has been blocking them and making sure that the stakeholders or other departments are aware so that they could help. And I think with at least that, you can keep them happy or at least get them to feel comfortable with you. It's, that, that, that is how I see it. It's, it's mostly like making them believe that you're there as an ally not somebody who is there to impede them that's that's um so i'm, I'm tell, telling you another story kind of when you're talking about an ally and somebody that's uh not a competition but um of course during development there are different situations and let's say you have like an author developer who's like the, your art lead or just your game director, creator, whoever, like, and then he, <laughs> I can, I've been told like a number of times of those stories where like there's art department, everybody like scribbling, doing their stuff, that suddenly he appears, walks around, sees some kind of like a robot or something or something, and then says <laughs> the word like, I want this in metal, or I want this red, right? And of course, one decision, there's like a bunch of other, like a ripple effect everywhere. And if it, it, it's good if it's about art, but God forbid it's about like game mechanics or something else. Like, mm -hmm. uh, how do you solve those situations? How do you make sure that the, the team is, you know, that they're not throwing themselves out of the window and 
not feel like the guys who had to redo the Sonic the Hedgehog and the in, in the movie. I think that's uh, that's the role of middle management. That's the fun bit of middle management. It's like you're trying to shelter or keep everybody happy um, in terms of like the artists or or the developers, but also it's like a lot of communication with higher up stakeholders, which is selling the vision as early as possible so that they could veto it as early as possible so that you could minimize the repercussions below. But of course you can't stop that. Occasionally they will come over and say, I want that to be like this now. Even if you're already going into this trajectory, and it's basically a balancing act of how about this alternative? You know, I could still, you know, I could still make what you want happen, but here is an alternative solution that will probably cause less trouble for people. So it's basically inserting another option. Hopefully, crossing your fingers, they buy into it. If they don't, well, you just have to book that into a milestone somehow. Yeah, I think it's very important to kind of um, I know it's a little bit of politics and kind of that kind of stuff, but uh, me, like I hate politics, especially like in companies. I thought that when you're in a company, this thing just doesn't exist. You're just like free of it. But uh, like a couple of years ago, I read the book, like on Harvard Business something, and they're saying they're like uh, black and white, saying that politics is a like a necessary evil in every organization out there and you do have to make sure that you're kind of going in this direction no matter where you are if it's like a small company or is it a big company I think it's universal everywhere yeah. so when you're talking about these uh, visits from management and, and into the um, into the trenches let's say uh, when they were shooting movies like in the 70s let's say like Godfather uh, there was a practice uh, at Paramount and any other big studios where they were showing dailies dailies is basically something we've shot during the day and one of the anecdotes is that uh, Paramount saw Al Pacino and Godfather during one of the dailies and they were so unimpressed that they wanted to fire him do you ever happen to be during those moments where you're showing a build or you're doing something or you're showing like your key you know models or, or environments and suddenly you understand that they they don't really like it and when this arises what do you do like how do you make sure that nobody gets fired that we continue to because it's super subjective moment right it's like this very that's what kind of can make or break the game how do you navigate that? Well, hopefully you don't get to that point. <laughs> um, for me, it's more of just mitigation. It's like not getting to that point, which, is, which means constant communication or finding ways to be able to clearly communicate. Because like, for me, stand-ups may not be enough. Talking about things verbally may not be enough. Somebody might be half listening. Somebody, you know, you cannot. But like I used to work before with a software called Shotgun, Shotgrid. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
as a as as an art manager or or a head of a department which is very visual i find it as a very very good tool to show works in progress or to come up with playlists pertaining to art teams because that way they can't just use their imagination and then reinterpret what you're doing into something that they they think it's supposed to look like but I think that is a very useful tool, at least for me, um, when it comes to showing um, production updates. Because it's like, this is the tone of red that I'm talking about. It's it's not this. It's not that. It's this one. Just watch the video, you know. And and I I could sit them in a meeting and just show them all of this progress, and then they could flag what they want, what they don't want, and I could negotiate in those meetings. So. So my question was. When you're, you talk a lot about communication, and this is something I feel like a lot of artists are struggling with. You know, a lot of them are introverts. They don't really, they don't want to take an extra phone call when somebody calls them, right? Um, when you have juniors who are just starting out, when, or where you have people from just fresh out of school, uh, what advice would you give them? What skills? Apart from just you know your technical stuff or your base stuff, what should they work on in order to be kind of like a more efficient member of the team and kind of have a better you know journey in the industry, not not getting fired? Or I think that um, even as juniors or even if you're just starting out in the industry, you shouldn't just be focused on your discipline. There are more things than just being really good at your craft. Another aspect is it's, it's always a threefold type of responsibility for me, regardless of what rank you are in a company. One is, yes, it's about your discipline. Second is your responsibilities to production. Um, and it, it's not just like about meeting deadlines. It's not that. It's owning the content that you are, that you are gonna make Start thinking about repercussions of the things that you are making. Start thinking about like where it can be reused, or you know, speed up other people's work, not just yours. Um, and lastly, is how to be a team player because being a team player means opening up um, the ability to communicate with other people in about all those other areas, such as your discipline such as the things that you can be efficient about. So for me, as, as, as a team lead, it's, it's all about making sure that each individual within the team could potentially eventually take on a leadership role, no matter if they want to be a specialist or an expert in that particular field. And by empowering them to be a well-rounded individual, you can delegate more. You can delegate more responsibilities because at some point you're just going to be like, uh, you know, you're going to be in this industry for such a long time that you won't be a master of all of those intricacies anymore. You're going to be stepping back and you won't be able to yourself like be able to say, this is exactly where we should go. Sometimes you do have to delegate that to other people who are closer to the trenches people who are closer to the work. And in order to be able to do that, 
you need to get them to think the way that you do as a manager, as a producer, as a lead. So, so you know, it's, it's all about that. It's delegation. Making them feel like the work is their own and it is also their responsibility. So, that's actually an excellent uh, advice for, I think, if you want to excel at any career, right? It's not just art or it's not just game dev. It's just you need to kind of, if you're there, you might as well try to figure out what you want to do, what's your next step and the next step. And I had this question in mind uh, when we were uh, chatting on the um, on uh, on Facebook is that um, I've been playing games like for a while, and I still remember games that were like in the made in the 80s, let's say. And uh, the big question that I have now is like, where are those people who are making those games? Like, where are the people who were making Duke Nukem, like 3D, right? Where are those level designers? Where are those, you know, art producers? Because it it, it it a game that was created like what is it, like 30 years ago or something like that. Um, what happened to them? Like, and the the question is, do you feel like game industry is this place where only the young can play, and if you you can grow to a certain level, and then you need to look for something else, or do you feel like this is a place where you can build your entire career? And still be, you know, super successful and continue making games. At least from what I've seen so far, there are some which actually left the industry altogether because they got tired of it. Um, but there were others, many others, actually more people that I know, um, who decided they just set up their own um, because they got tired of working for other people and they wanted some sort of finan a better financial security for themselves. They wanted a little bit more independence, so they set up their own shop. Um, and that's so far what I've seen. That's one of the very popular kind of decisions to make for a game developer. And we see that's why this industry, the new studio pops up almost what like every week you open up there's somebody invested in something um, it, it feels like this is and you yeah, feel free to like contradict me and interrupt me uh, it feels like this is a, a huge benefit like even if you compare it to we, we have this example was a godfather um, that actually did not work in film where uh, I think it was Coppola who created like United Artists brand yeah. and he wanted to build you know filmmakers for filmmakers we'll create our own movies and there is no studios gonna rule us and we'll find our own money and eventually they all went bankrupt <laughs> so it didn't work out um, with games it seems that like Valheim or like PUBG or um, you know, Epic may, Epic may, may not be the perfect example because they were like since, since forever, but there is this uh, potential for a hit to come up out of nowhere. And let's look at the indie market, like or a game like Stardew Valley. There was like one guy, just one guy slaving on it, like he was driving this shitty Toyota Corolla, like from the <laughs> 1980s, and that's all he did. 
but like millions of copies sold like huge hit no nobody even remembers harvest moon anymore like, everybody's playing just stardew valley so it's like reinvented the genre so do you feel like this uh, nature of uh, video game developers they want to go and build their own shop do you feel like this is this basically means that games are gonna continue on and on and on and they will outlive netflix and studios and metaverses and whatever we have in the future or maybe there is some caveat and eventually they're going to go down i think it's going to live on it's it's funny when you think about it when the world goes into recession who gets the most amount of sales it's the entertainment industry it's uh it's a method of escape so i think i think it's going to continue I'm 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 not worried about like it ever going down unless somehow AI starts making its own fun games and finds the recipe to humanity's happiness but uh, until then <laughs> yeah so far like you, you mentioned escapism I think it's a very big uh point here um like my hobbies are probably reading and games and at some point I figured that I stopped watching movies altogether like for because uh, there's very little kind of interaction both like mentally physically or emotionally or something like when I'm reading a book I kind of like you know figure out what the character does it's in my head yeah well because it's with movies it's somebody else showing you their vision whereas when it's books it's up to your imagination on how these characters looks, look like, how this world looks like, how it feels like. You fill in the blanks a lot. And in, in, with a book, you make it your own vision, so to speak. And with a game, even though it might be super directed, it's so many super scripted, there's still this feeling that you are in control. Yeah, it's an illusion of free will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going through this on your own with all the and like don't get me started on like multiplayer games or like very good very well designed games like i don't know like the soul series for example where these situations they occur out of nowhere they never they've, they've never been scripted but the the rules work in a way where it's kind of there so i guess it's a good way of saying that if you're the games are gonna continue we'll still be able to find work there whether it's with AI or not with AI or and to quote Sveraslav from yesterday's that yes AI is there it's sort of like a substitute but at the end of the day at least for now it's one of those tools that can help you build stuff faster iterate faster achieve results that you want to achieve in a quicker manner and uh, it's not something you should you know <laughs> ignore like a ostrich just put your head in the sand and it's something to embrace I guess mm -hmm. in general right all right well um, thank you so much for your time I, mean, I really thank you thanks for enjoying another episode of the 80 level roundtable podcast check out upcoming episodes on the 80 level website at 80.lv join our career site at 80.lv slash rfp and share our podcast with friends and on your social networks.